0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to not the Scottish Watches podcast. Well, it kind of is. Fancy, uh, well, it's half of it. Well, I suppose really it's two thirds. Because mm-hmm. there's two of us and there's only one Ariel. Yeah. So this is episode four of the combo team, the dream team. <laughs> was it the, is, that, is that what they call the American basketball team that went to the Olympics? Is that called the dream team? Are you a basketball fan, Ariel?
1: Um, You know, actually, I remember when I was at the Olympics with Omega, I got to oh, see... Oh, Here we go. Cool. Uh, oh,
0: yeah. Here we go. Here we well, go. Well, no, go. I got go to see the
1: – I got to see America – this was amazing. It was America's dream team versus China, basketball. Uh-huh. Right. And, I mean, what, what an amazing thing because it was, like, pretty obvious to me that America would win just because, like, uh-huh. the Chinese guys were all taller, which was interesting. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but they were extremely rigid. And the American team – it was almost like – remember, like, the, 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 the Harlem Globetrotters? How they never yeah. really looked, they were trying very hard. It was like that. It was it was, and did, it was amazing.
0: Did Omega have a limited edition for the occasion?
1: Um probably. For every player. what is it like 18 <laughs> watches for every Olympics, you know? I don't know. Yeah,
0: something like that, something like that. And even for Olympics that don't happen. Yeah. You know? Spares. Anywho, so welcome to episode four of the combo that is a blog to watch and Scottish watches. We've been doing this series on watches 101 a guide to buying luxury watches mm-hmm. and we have reached uh the nadir is that what you would call it the peak the summit where the conclusion we're looking at the conclusion yeah <laughs> that's a better word whereby we're looking at your questions so we've been sent in some questions
2: and we will go through them and we and didn't actually have David's. to make any of these up ourselves people actually genuinely sent them in <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I was I was sitting there having to invent Instagram profiles and all sorts to ask yeah. myself a question. <laughs>
2: that's just pure uh, stalking
0: <laughs> Anyway, before we go though, let's do a wristwatch check. Do you see oh, that? That was well, professional. That was that was professionalism. That was. That's that what happened. you get
2: up at three in the morning? Thanks to diabetes.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then accidentally <laughs> buy a watch while I'm up at three in the morning. <laughs> I really shouldn't get up in the middle no. of the night. It was bad a bad idea. move. Bad anyway. Wow. So. Let's take it away. Ariel, what are you wearing?
1: Um, I am wearing the, I think it's from 2017. It is the uh, the Tag Heuer Ottavia Heuer 02. So this Ooh, was that like, nice. I don't remember in 2016, they had something called the Ottavia Cup. And most people don't mm-hmm. recognize that this watch was actually cr- like crowd designed. So Tag Heuer had this whole uh, promotion where they try to figure out what vintage design of an Octavia they would come up with. And it was this whole thing. So this is, the, this is the first and maybe only crowd design Tag Hoyer. So I think it's super cool. And it's got the Heuer I mean, movement.
0: I mean, is that, that's, that's the design process that uh, AP now use for the Code 1159. No, they right. didn't ask
1: anyone. You know that.
0: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, very That's a good watch. I like that. I like that. What are you wearing, Ricky? See, I even asked you.
2: Oh, you're such a sweetheart. Uh, I am wearing... The 2020 edition of the Talker, and Ooh, this right, one, okay. it isn't the loomed up one, this is Air Defender right. in steel, and uh-huh. I sent you a photo, because I've mentioned this a couple of times before, people have <laughs> sort of said, you know, what's it like, what's it like, what's it like, and when I was at Basel last year, Porsche Design, that you've mentioned on the show, had a great stand with uh-huh. some vintage Porsche and some new ones, and they had one of these guys... And it's the Orfina Porsche design with the inner rotating bezel, I think. it's inner, No, it's not. It's a tachymeter. This one's an inner rotating bezel. I've not been to sleep uh-huh. yet, so I've been up for 24 uh-huh. hours. Uh, yeah. and it looks very <laughs> reminiscent. Everything from the case design, the internal layout, the dial, the sub-dials, the chapter ring, the markers. Uh, uh-huh. It's just really, really cool. And Sophie will be asking for it back at some point, so I'm just sort of... Wearing are, you say, are
0: you saying that Sophie is continuing her record of stealing stuff?
2: You stole that joke from me. <laughs> yes, I said it was another She
0: started off a criminal enterprise
2: <laughs> when she, What watch was it that she nicked? It Was, was it a good just I it? don't know I don't know She stole it out of somebody's locker room When she was a kid She, she did,
0: that's right You need to go back and check The original Scottish Watches podcast With Sophie Rindler For yeah. that one It's a very good one Probably our most sweary episode Sweary
2: Sophie and Barbara before, She's quite but, sweary as well before,
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. Anywho, so what am I wearing you ask? What are you wearing Rick? I am wearing the Horage Otark Ah. And I've not worn this for a while, and I really, really like it. It Was this part of the whole, if
2: I don't talk about it, people forget I've got it?
0: Yeah, so I decided that if Mm -hmm. I just stopped talking about it, they'd forget that they'd sent it to me. But Mm -hmm. it's actually really nice, so I need to talk about it. Okay, so this is their own movement, their in-house movement, the K1. Mm -hmm. And it's a a really nice, slim... it feels like a kind of integrated bracelet type thing. Uh, it's got a splash of colour on it. It's just lovely. Really like it. It's a lot of watch big for day, the money. Which double. one is?
1: Is it? Which version of the Autark is it?
0: This is the original. It isn't the. This is not the tenth anniversary one. This right. is the original in titanium. It's a lot of watch uh, for the, the money, blackout. isn't it? Yeah, it is. Is and they are going. They are now doing this Turbion thing, whereby they've had a bit of a shall we say fallout with Louis Perry. Uh. So, in a... Which I don't think comes as a surprise to many people, from what I understand. And so, in a fit of Andy, who's the chief... Is Andy the chief executive? I think he is. Where I think most people possibly thought, well, you know, he'll just chuck it in. He's just saying, well, actually, if you're not going to play ball, Swiss watch industry, we're just going to do our own thing. So, they are now building their own in-house tourbillon for this new watch they've got coming. Mm -hmm. Which, you know... I know everybody likes to talk about disrupting the industry. I think these guys might actually have a chance of really making some dents in what's going on. They'll have th- by the end of probably next year, they'll have three in-house movements of their own. One of them will be a turbion, mm-hmm. one of them will be a micro rotor, and the other one's a standard uh, one that they can put dates etc. on as terms of uh, modules. So we'll see what happens.
2: They're good, with mechanics. Yeah.
0: I think the key thing with them is they're good
2: engineers. They're
0: mm-hmm. good process engineers. You know, you can go and employ plenty of good watchmakers, but what there isn't necessarily in a lot of industries is good guys and girls that understand how the whole process has to go together in order to get the bits they've built and designed actually finished. Mm -hmm. Because you've not got a watch until it's 100% done. So it's all (laughs) very Ask Bremen and their in-house design. They know all about that. They've been working on it for goodness knows how long. (laughs) Until they actually get process sorted well you know, it's nothing. more simple
1: than that a watchmaker mm-hmm. is in many ways like a technician they know how to assemble and fix things and maybe if we're really lucky they know things like how to make pieces you know like on a lathe or something like that a micro engineer these days is basically the only type of skill um that you can rely on with other skills added onto that to actually make a movement so micro engineering yeah. is, is crucial because the parts are made in specialized machines, that you need to be a specialist to program and operate. And so that's why this other skill comes in. Everyone just says watchmaker, 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 once in a while movement engineer, but it's really micro-engineer that knows how to make these precision parts. It's all about precision part making, and, and, that's, yeah. and that's really what it comes down to.
2: When people talk about a watchmaker these days, generally they're talking about a parts assembler, not a watch designer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- someone that can take a kit um, I mean what's interesting is and again I guess this is you know this are, this are actually goes into I'll just start with the first question and that mm-hmm. is you know how do I evaluate whether or not um you know like an in-house movement is 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 worth its salt right we're just talking about origin and things like that but from from the outside perspective if you're not really deep in this mm-hmm. and someone says i have an in-house movement what is the consumer supposed to do to know whether or not it's better than an edda worse than an edda how do you evaluate especially from afar when you don't really get to see it or put it on a machine and, and and test the rate results how do you guys you know how do you guys recommend that that people go out there and and make a judgment about whether or not in-house movement or an independently made movement uh, is a good investment.
0: Well, I recommend that the thing to do is to set up a watch podcast, mm-hmm. spend two years doing it, yep. getting to know folk like you, yep. and then phone you up and ask you
2: or read Amazon reviews.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> so delegate is what you're you mean, saying. Just, de- 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 just delegate, delegate, yeah, delegate,
0: yeah. delegate, so you can blame someone
1: else when you duff up.
2: I don't know, Ario, you tell us. Okay,
1: okay, I, I can try. Um, I think the thing that you have to appreciate that most people don't is they're like, oh, it's just got an Edda in there. You know, Edda makes really good movements. And yeah. the more something is mass produced, the better, honestly, when it comes to reliability, because the company has more incentive to make sure that it works properly. The lower the production, the more risk there is because there's less people they have to make happy and they have less of an ability to have a return on their investment. It costs at least a million dollars, sometimes up to four or five million dollars, maybe more in some instances, to design just one movement, right? And so Mm -hmm. if a brand is making like 30 pieces, that's why those watches have to cost a boatload of money because they're trying to amortize like a massive expense. But also they're like, well, we're only making this many. Does the movement really need to work that well? It takes so much, like, little tweaking and trial and error and, you know, having somebody wear the the movement for a few months and then looking at it again and inspecting, like, oh, where is their wear and tear and what parts should be replaced and things like that. Like, these machines are prone to, like, any number of problems, and the more they've been tested, the better it is. So the first thing I would say to people is look at the planned production. Like, with Origin, the K1, they're planning on making a lot of these movements. They're planning on selling them to others this is the type of movement which has to be a workhorse. Same thing with an EDA yep. 28, 24, something like that. You go to like some like independently made tourbillon, we made 10 of them, um, you're reliant on that brand still being around so you can call them and be like, the tourbillon broke again, will you fix it for free? So that's the first sort of step I would look at. Is look at the pro- the, the number of the, of the movements in production. See how many the, uh, watches there, and see how long it's been made. The longer it's been made, and the and the more and the more units they've made in general, chances are it's going to basically perform better. None of this has to do with sort of like aesthetic or emotional elements, but this is like your uh, sense of it won't break. Um, what what do you guys think?
0: Yeah. We're trying to identify is this an in-house movement a good thing or is this in-house movement a thing that has more risk associated to it? Is Mm -hmm. how is it being built? Is it being built by reliable machines that have built hundreds of them or has it been built by a single watchmaker that you're then going to be dependent on as to whether they built it on a Friday after having had no sleep? Yeah.
1: So, in other words, what I said.
2: What he said. Yeah, yeah. But no, I would agree. And th- if you look at any sort of number of micro brands, they all come out with the Seiko NH35A. It's inexpensive. It doesn't look the greatest, but it works. And one of the best videos I remember, and I've mentioned it in the podcast and stuff before, was from the Watches TV, and they did a breakdown of the Rolex Sub. And Peter Speakmarin took this thing apart and explained it bit by bit about how it was a great design you could knock it around, it would keep on ticking and the amount of effort that goes in from Rolex because they mass produce, but they mass produce at a quality level and return, what is it, minus two plus two guaranteed for the duration of the warranty of the watch. So I think those kind of things and what Ariel says is quite correct as well, something that's a little bit out there like JLC because they've always got new additions of minute repeaters and tourbillons and things like that they're probably not as great because remember GLC had something out last year at SIHH and it, it broke was the down
0: gyro, was it the gyro turbion?
2: it was one of them and it broke yeah. down well in, in testing with the press and stuff in front of it. so it just goes to show <laughs> you want to to maybe to to stick to the the meat and two so, veg when it comes to standard movements yeah so
0: what we're saying to GLC is GLC, you should be buying your movements off of Seiko, Seiko. yeah tag <laughs> that that it worked out
1: great well okay so here's when you should buy an in-house movement, or something that's lower production, and that is when you're interested in the the beauty of hand decoration. While you do have mass-produced movements that are sometimes given hand decoration, it's not really the same. Um, if you're buying a watch for the artistic value, then I love the idea of getting a movement that is not too complicated, but you know is 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 original, and through the process. Um, there's a lot of decoration. And so I think one of the classic examples is like, you know, um, a Philippe Defour or something like that. No, don't get me wrong. He's had his complicated movements for sure. But, you know, the basic watches are just manually wound, time only, nothing fancy. But there's just like a boatload of hand decoration. So the hours that an artisan can put into these independently made movements is often higher than something which is mass production. And there's all kinds of hybrids. So like, Armin Strang, for example, prior to when they made their own movements, all they did was decorate Eddas and stuff like that. And that can be beautiful. You know, mm-hmm. you can see, I've seen, in, you know, beautifully decorated uh, 2892s that have been, you know, engraved and skeletonized. There's, there's even 7750s that look great. Um, and that, and that is someone where they take a kit and then they, they go ahead and they modify it so modify modifications of of mass produced movements is also good That's that's something there oh well, look but, at the
2: Joker watches they're based on Ettas as well
1: sure, but that's not you don't look at the movement right so that's a that's an ETA that has a module and that's yet another flavor of what we're talking mm-hmm. about here. I don't want to get people too confused because there's fully there's fully in-house made there's fully you know industrially made and there's all these you know sort of gray areas um, we yeah. could have a whole episode on that and people sleep great at night after we finish talking oh, about bonus it. episodes
0: <laughs> behind the, the OnlyFans account, so let's move on then to another question, and I suspect this one might grind some gears so I'm going to adapt this question slightly but it comes from a guy called Liam Mulholland
2: so oh you're a cheat, go for the first I'm question, it's longer
0: alright, the first question uh, that's why they've uh, got numbers at
2: the start of them, you dick
0: alright, well, I, I wanted to ask the one that leads me into auctions though
2: no.
1: So Oh my favourite topic. Well,
0: yeah exactly. That's what I'm hoping yes. for. <laughs> so I'm going to do this question first, so shut up, Ricky. <laughs> so you one of the things that has been sent to us quite a few times after the previous three shows is that you've been quoted as saying never buy over retail. Mm-hmm. Now unless what's your you're, thoughts on no, this? No no no
2: unless you're huh? money laundering.
0: <laughs> what's your thoughts? on this as applies to vintage watches and also to roll out the topic slightly further with the recent craziness within auctions. Bring in your thinking about what's been happening in the auction world. So paying over retail for vintage <laughs> and within the auction context.
1: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of put just two points together here. So bear with mm-hmm. me. The first point is that auctions are a good thing when you do not have an established market for something. And the best time to not have an established market when something's one of a kind. So if there's like an old item that happens in a particular condition, or is owned by someone, or had some special history, or it was just you know one of a kind ever, if there isn't a market for something, that's where auctions came from. It doesn't have a price, so we're gonna see what the market will bear. And that's what an auction is if you start to auction things that are available on the market elsewhere then it's a perversion of the concept of why auctions were smart to begin with so that's that's one rule i don't like buying things at auction if it's available somewhere else probably cheaper two and i i don't know if you remember this uh... years ago like in the nineties and stuff like that there would there would be all these like um... infomercials for things for advice or financial advice or relationship advice and then very in in the small text it said, for entertainment purposes only. And you're like, what does that even mean? And that same advice applies to auctions.
2: That's what it says in Rex pants.
1: Right. <laughs> if, if you are basing um, the value of a watch at what one probably not sober person does on one day in one part of the year, that... That's not a price of something. The price of something is what a bunch of people agree it should go for, not what one individual. You don't know the background. You don't know the context. See, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing that happens behind the scenes at auctions. Let me give you an example. An auctioneer knows the people pretty well who are are bidding. And the auctioneer, I don't want to name any names, goes to one of those people and be like, hey, you know, just called Tom. Hey, Tom, uh, if you bid this amount for this watch... I will go ahead and give you that other watch you wanted sort of behind the scenes. Whether or not that's happening, it could happen, it does happen, it influences the auction price, that makes the quote unquote news, I don't think it's actually news, and all of a sudden you just basically have fraud. It's not illegal because it's not a regulated market like the stock market, but it should be regulated. And so, when if you are a watch lover and you wanna sort of see what's going on at auction, and you wanna see what some schmuck somewhere is paying for something, consider it for entertainment purposes only. If you're considering it a good place to buy watches um, at fair prices, it is very rarely that these days.
0: Yes. And so in reflection of, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that some of the stuff recently that has been sold uh, has been sold for twice as much as you I, can just I, I go I on the that. and buy it.
1: <laughs> I want everyone to know there that when when a Auction house releases information about what it sold and how much money. Ignore it. Pretend you didn't even hear it. It's for entertain. It doesn't mean anything to anyone anywhere. It doesn't influence anything. You you should not be influenced by any of those things. It creates a bubble. It creates something that will explode in your face there's going to be way more people disappointed than made happy just ignore all that that's my advice
0: and so what what do you think is happening do you think it is just as you say there are drunk people in the room or on the telephone and it's just the hype or do you think actually there is some more you know uh what would be the appropriate word dodgy stuff going on
1: <laughs> it's all of the uh, above some of the stuff there's a lot all, of deception all, a
0: bit of both, a bit of both. there
1: is a classification of individual out there who sees watches as an alternative investment vehicle a very mm-hmm. speculative one very very speculative and this is because as we know in the world and this is before COVID 19 uh equities pretty flat not exciting uh bonds futures commodities not very exciting the most exciting areas where things that were alternative assets. It started with like wine and art and sometimes cars and at some point watches got thrown in the mix. This is a function of there not being like very good other things to invest in. This is because there's professional money managers and investment people and blah blah, blah that have to have to give their, their clients something to hope in, something to believe in. It's a bunch of smoke and mirrors. That's really all it is.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean I see that there's a there's a Sotheby's auction just coming up and I can't actually find the watch uh straight away here I'm just looking for it but I see that there was one that I you can already identify I think it was originally sold this year's only watch which was a charity and now it's being resold on the auction market so these things just seem to
1: It's a revolving turn over. door. It's a revolving yeah, door. More. And the auction houses are the only ones that win. The brands do yeah. not win. The consumer doesn't win. These auction houses absolutely adore the concept of there being a revolving door because every single time the watch gets in there, remember, there is a buyer's premium and a seller's premium. So the final auction amount doesn't actually include what the person's paying for. In the small details, there's all these horrible fees. So you get all excited and you're like, oh, bid it $1,000. All of a sudden, your $1,000 watch costs. 1500 bucks you're like how did that even happen because of all the little nonsense things that they, they hide in there it is so upsetting to so many people unless you are extremely advanced or just have stupid amounts of money and want to look cool in front of a room do not participate in auctions end of story unless it's eBay eBay's a different story but that's yeah. that's a, that's, a, that's a, again it's a different beast
0: so just uh leading on then to a second question i'll just uh, merge these two together uh vincent davidson hi gents hope you're both well have a question for episode four of watches 101 currently in the process of trying to get my hands on the discontinued white dial milgauss uh 116 very good watch uh, not everyone's cup of tea, I know. My cup of tea. In one of the earlier episodes, you discussed the relative importance of box and papers. I'm seeing quite a few in chrono Twenty Four without any papers, and was wondering if you and Ariel have any tips or advice on what to look for when buying without boxes and papers. Thank you, Vinny.
1: Um, you want me to start? Yes. Yes, yeah, Ariel. Okay, so um, I don't know about you guys, but every single time I bought a watch, eh, I've never found anything to do with the box and papers ever. The box is just a box. It's utterly useless after that. You can't even actually use it as a box for anything else because it's full of cardboard or something. <laughs> um, and the papers have never helped me do anything at all. So it's true. When it comes to like reselling a watch, people like the complete package. Something about it makes them feel like it's closer to new and if you have this notion where you want to resell it, I guess it is, in fact, the truth that getting the box and papers um, tends to help you get a better price. It's just a, it's a human psychology thing.
2: Is it also the fact if you buy something with box and papers, you feel as if the previous owner has maybe had more respect for it, more care and attention? And it's psychological. And it's maybe not stolen, because if it comes with the box and papers, the chances are... It's not been thiefed, but if it's just a watch, it could have been from a, a dubious source.
1: Boxes and papers can be uh, can be copied. There's mm-hmm. there's all kinds of forgeries. You can go on you can go on eBay and buy the box of a Rolex and papers, and then they marry it with a fake one. It's true that it seems that way, but it's not exactly like a fault proof system. So there's yeah. a psychological component, and it is true that if you want to resell it within a year or so, and you're thinking about keeping in good condition. It will help you get a better price but if you want to wear the watch and you're going to have it for four or five years you're going to ding it up it's not going to be worth that much afterwards anyways other than sort of as an heirloom piece for yourself i'd say if you see a good deal and it doesn't have the box and papers and it's not something you think you're going to want to get rid of because you know you like the watch don't worry about it
2: good okay next question from jason hoops 70 on instagram regarding questions for the podcast are there any fashion watches worth purchasing
1: yes but I'll let you guys take. Thanks. This Let's
0: started. move yeah, on. Yeah, th- those 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 ones with uh, with all the uh, gemstone things that make it look like a Rolex. Michael Rainbow Kors. Dekona, they're all worth the parts. I love them. They're great. <laughs> I'd rock
2: those watches. Diesel watches. The bigger the better. Uh, diesel
0: watches. Uh, are there, some of the, some some of the
2: <laughs> Go big or go home.
0: So, I mean, it depends on what you like. If you like it, the, the advantage of a fashion watch normally. Well, can is
2: we define what a fashion watch like, is? Can we define what it is?
1: Oh, I can. I th- do you oh, know who boy, do, boy, you know, do you know who invented the fashion watch? Calvin Klein? No. Mm. Oh,
2: Rolex watch.
1: It's Fossil. Fossil. Fossil invented it was yes, they invented the the fashion watch. It was very simple what it was. They saw the hot watches. This was in the 80s. They saw the ones that were like the hot luxury watches and then mm-hmm. they said let's make inexpensive versions that kind of look like it and that's what a fashion watch was. The idea was that it wasn't a luxury watch in actual form but it looked close enough that it was like the designer knockoff, so to say. And that's the original meaning of what a fashion watch was. And Fossil um, uh, basically you know, uh, created it. And it, it made Fossil into a publicly traded company. And it's been copied oh. many, many times over. It has later turned into many, many different things. But that is the original meaning of a fashion watch. What it sometimes means today is a watch where the name on the dial is a fashion brand versus a traditional watch brand but as we know those those names merge so much that they're gray areas you know like like Chanel they make their own ceramic cases and stuff like that are they a watch company or are they more like a fashion house cuz they have fragrances and clothing and mm-hmm. makeup So what are they? So when the lines are blurred like that, it's hard to tell. I think there's amazing watches out there from fashion houses. I love Chanel watches. I love Hermes watches. Um, I like the Ralph Lauren watches. Not all of them, but they make Mm -hmm. gorgeous stuff because the thing that fashion houses do well is make things that are nice. So pretty much all fashion house watches are actually nice to look at. But some of them are too uh, basic or inexpensive in the materials and construction that gentlemen such as ourselves are like, okay, I've, I was there when I was 19 years old, but I'm into something better now. But there are mm-hmm. there are enough high end fashion house watches that, in many instances, I think they're superior in design to those from the traditional houses.
2: Yeah, but look at the Bulgari Octa range.
1: Yeah, is that a fashion is that a fashion watch or not? I mean, I, I would say it isn't because they have like a real watch manufacturer in Switzerland. Blah 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 blah. But same thing for same thing for uh, Louis Vuitton.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, all I'm saying is, if the way that you judge as to whether a fashion watch is worth purchasing. Is that if you turn up with all your pals who also are into watches as to how much attention you're going to get, then I recommend that Fossil, your watch you want is the Fossil Garrett watch, the LE1085. Go and look it up, I'll stick it in the show notes. And this is Fossil's version of the Rainbow Daytona, and it is rocking for 125 quid. Is it
2: better than my Vincero?
0: It's much better than See, It's it's better than your Vincero by some considerable distance. Because Mm -hmm. it's fossil. I mean, the reality is, they're... they're Fossil are doing their thing. Mm -hmm. So many of these kind of other fashion-ish brands like Vincero are doing the same thing, but are saying that it's something else. Yeah. So they're saying... Uh, what we are is we are, you know, disrupting the industry. Why pay this for this Swiss watch that's this Mm. much more expensive when you can get this and it does this and it does that? When, in fact, all is is a fashion watch, exactly the same as a Fossil, put together in the same factories, probably. Whereas Fossil are saying, look, this is just a good-looking watch. It is for fashion purposes. It will go with whatever. Yeah, I would say, like,
2: G-Shocks are fashion watches as well because, yes, they are form and function. ...as all watches are to tell the time... ...but the colour schemes, the layout, the designs... ...as Simon Porter said in the recent edition of the talk show... You know who actually uses the functions in a G-Shock? Maybe I do in the gym, but most people probably don't. So, there's so, fashion watches is a very broad description. Like you say, the Chanel J12, all the way down to MVMT. Well,
0: I'm absolutely all in for shilling for fossil if they'll send me one of these watches.
2: <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway, right next question, Ariel.
1: Oh, it's on me now. Okay. Yep. Um, so this is a really important question for a lot of people, and that is, you know, where do I buy a watch? Um, There's so many places out there, including us, that will help you determine what watch to get and help you make the good decision. But once you figure out what that model is, especially online, where do you buy it? Because oftentimes you're going to go into Google and you're going to type in the model and you're going to feel really good. You're going to want to buy it. and all of a sudden, there's this like cascading list of all types of things from the brand itself that will sell it to you. Uh, third-party authorized dealers gray markets pre-owned watches in your country watches in other countries and all of a sudden there becomes this this incredible like diversity of places to buy and what happens is sort of a form of choice paralysis where people like stomp on the brakes and they're ready to buy right now and they're like "Uh oh what do I do now I don't know what to trust I don't know what to get so I'll ask you guys to answer first how do you recommend people make decisions about where to buy when presented with a lot of offers for essentially the same watch.
2: First of all you find out the type of watch you're looking for then you go online and you try and find as close to what you're after condition, age, colors, if you want box and papers, if you don't, if you're not really that bothered about it and then on the condition you compare pricing, location, and from that you look at the different, you, you get a hit list of people that have got the watch for sale, private individuals, dealers, grey etc, depending on what it is, and then you do your research on the person or the business. Uh, look and see what the prior transaction history is like if it's ebay look at trust pilot if it's somebody in facebook marketplace look into them how long's their account been active do a search for them see if anyone's written anything bad about them have they sold watches before maybe get in touch with somebody or get references from them and then just make a decent sort of informed decision and always as rick says if yours ways of covering yourself through paypal through escrow accounts things like that just try your best to cover yourself and always look for telltale signs of if it's too good to be true it probably is if their name is chris and they're australian don't buy it from him <laughs> right uh right.
0: Is, is the main main warning I'll,
1: go. I'll add my two cents here um i think that you guys hit on a very important point and that is reversibility The ability to reverse a transaction if it doesn't go right for whatever reason or I don't like the watch is quite valuable because there's a lot of things that you buy out there that that you cannot reverse. You also have – it's not actually a universal rule, but the less you you spend, probably the less assurances you have that it's in good condition. Um, With that said, price does not always equal – safety or condition I've seen plenty of instances where watches are you know priced at at, at one high amount that are in poor condition and something is a lower amount it tends to be that the best values are peer-to-peer sales right so if I'm buying a watch from one of you guys there's a good chance that that's gonna be the fairest transaction because you're not trying to make a margin you're just trying to make your money back as much as possible right so that makes it that makes it a lot easier but peer-to-peer at least today, without the tools that I've designed being built, that's a whole other story, um, is the scariest one, right? Because it's like, like you said, can you trust that individual? Where do they live? What do you know about them? Is there any type of transaction history? Buying from the brands themselves is tends to be the most expensive option. And in a lot of ways, you can get uh, a return on your investment, even if you're spending more than, let's say, a grey market price or a used price. I wrote an article um, some time ago that was basically the unexpected benefits of buying watches from an authorized dealer. Um, you get preferential treatment if you want, uh, you know, one of the new limited editions or some new hot watch coming up. Um, they might buy it back from you um, because you're a known customer. They might invite you to events, and and you might get, you know, on some list for some cool things. So there are unexpected benefits to buying full retail, but a lot of times, Sometimes, you know that can be difficult because you're, 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 no one's ever felt like they got a deal buying something directly from the brand right so I would say that you know people should spend no more than about 30 minutes to an hour researching this worst case scenario if you don't trust a, a, a dealer ask to call them ask to get on a phone and see does this person seem trustworthy do they speak my language are they answering my questions do they even know about the watch at all I would say that if, if, if you can't make a decision on your own and you're really feeling stuck, find the best person that you can communicate with directly. Email's fine, but you really want to speak to them on the phone. It's not a foolproof process, but it's a lot easier to defraud someone remotely via email than it is to lie to them on the phone.
2: A point Rick mentioned there jokingly about our friends at Horology House is it looking further than just what you see on the surface. Because a lot of people got duped by this guy because he ran a YouTube channel, he had glitzy looking photography and video. He worked behind the scenes on a buy sell forum and all along the way there was problems mounting up behind the scenes. So you need to do as much checking as possible. When I bought my second watch three and a bit years ago, it was from a company. I went through eBay, went through PayPal, but I still went through all the previous history to see what people had said, if there was any negative stuff. I did a company's house check here in the UK on the business to see how long they'd been going, who was the directors. I went to a lot of detail just to make sure that the money that i was spending was safe and thankfully it was and then when i got the watch since i bought it online i took it to a local independent who authenticated the movement because i didn't have a clue what i was doing still don't but didn't have a clue worse back then i wasn't going to be able to take the back off and inspect the movement and make sure everything was okay
0: and as an addendum to that always remember customs and shipping and exchange rates so make sure you understand where this watch is coming from just in case. It seems like a reasonably good deal, but then it follows itself up with a customs charge because it's actually been imported from Switzerland or
1: Yeah, I guess it depends where you live. I, I I've I've been pretty lucky. In the US we have really, really modest uh custom charges, if any. But you know, mm. in Europe, for example, it's a totally different story. So buying outside yeah. of your country, depending on where you live, can have pretty drastic consequences in the price
2: should we do simon max well for simon max long and intricate question or do you want me to ask it
0: yeah you ask it because i'm not really sure okay. i understand it big right, okay
2: <laughs> simon mac from our facebook group has asked a very important question ariel what's your favorite cheese
1: uh my favorite cheese Mm-hmm. Am I allowed to say anything other than Bivere's Gruyere?
2: <laughs> not daily, then, no?
1: I don't know what that is.
0: Yeah, I don't think you get it. The equivalent in the States would be... Triangles sort of, of spreadable cheese. It's spreadable, spreadable cheese. It's not really cheese. cheese. I was it just... Does-
1: I was just informed that I have high cholesterol and I should stick away from cheese. <laughs> like, it's not like terribly high and I'm actually fit, but apparently, like, I've just found myself eating too much saturated fat. So, you guys are taught, like, your, your guys' question should be, like, how do you stay away from cheese? Because I, I quite like dairy.
2: Who's been telling you about cholesterol?
1: I'm, like, a medical doctor?
2: Find a better <laughs> one. Find one that's actually up to <laughs> modern <laughs> stuff.
0: You, you, you want one of these holistic ones or whatever they're called? You want to <laughs> know your
2: LDL and your HDL levels and do a comparison. We'll talk about this offline. Yeah, so Simon asks <laughs> a very interesting question. What's your favourite cheese? And my reply to that would be Moser.
0: Moser cheese? What,
2: the watch? Yeah. They made, they made a watch out uh, of it, so that must be. Oh, that like Moser. It
0: uh, it's yeah. good. It's going to stick around for a while. It's
1: gonna is be someone just going to that say that Parmigiani? Is thats that, is that
2: going <laughs> to
0: <great? laughs> oh, Well done, well done. Baboom, chish.
2: Yeah. And I had uh, another list of add ons there, which would be who's your favourite honey manufacturer? GLC. G- obviously, GLC. Uh, your concrete mixers? Bamford and then what was your favourite brand of tracksuit to wear to Baselworld
1: <laughs> tracksuit yeah. <laughs> I, I feel so foolish I don't uh I, I couldn't give you a list of tracksuit manufacturers. I'm more of a t shirt and shorts kind of guy. Fair enough. Yeah. I like I like air movement on my legs, you know I mean? Track food so confining. I'm not that cold.
2: That's it. Set the boys free. Fair enough.
1: Next Do you question. guys have a favorite tracksuit? That's I'm actually curious Ooh. now. Like is that a thing? If you're in Scotland oh, you have dear. to have don't, a favorite
0: tracksuit? Do where Ricky comes from in Scotland. Yeah.
2: Back in the yeah. day, Kappa. Back in the day, Kappa. <laughs> Ticini, oh god. Filler. Tic- 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 I like good a ones. nice
1: leisure outfit, I have to say, yeah. but I just I'm I prefer not to wear pants when possible.
2: British people Oh, that means well. trousers.
1: What? So here's my question: When someone gets our answer, what do they do with that information? They're like, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. like what? How is someone's life, uh, you know, in, invigorated by knowing that the, the, the tracksuit no, and cheese no, preferences? No, no.
0: Because because what this actually was is a ruse. So we're editing this out of the podcast, but it's a oh. it's allowed us to get you to say certain words, which we're then able to stitch back together to make it sound like you actually said it. So it was like a, we're gonna create a deep fake of Ariel Adams. <laughs> huh. Uh, fastening all AI that stuff voiced. together so yeah ai voice there. some of the things you're I'm, about to say are
1: going to be incredible i'm honored anyway.
2: <laughs> right next question rick
0: uh do you think this is from paul greenhorn do you think more exotic materials from aerospace and science tech companies will make it into future watches and what do you see on the horizon after vanta black forged carbon and sapphire cases any takers What's next mm. in the world of exotic materials? I'm not sure I can.
2: Adamantium. Adamantium. <laughs> I mean, they've made That's pretty
1: exotic, pretty mm-hmm. darn exotic. Uh,
0: I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure there is anything particularly random left for them to try, other than sure there parts are. From Come things. on, go on then. What are you looking forward to?
1: Well, okay, so let's let's not think about it that way. Let's think about what parts of a watch would benefit from new materials. And and the thing that that I think a question I've been asking for the last 10 years mm. is when are we going to see a fully mechanical movement that has zero metal in it? And that's interesting to me. So think about a, a, a movement which is all ceramics and synthetic sapphires and things like that. Like, that's in silicon.
2: Who did that? Was it Omega did a ceramic movement
1: a couple of years ago? Um, I mean, there's been bits and pieces of it. I don't think it was Omega. No, somebody did a, a ceramic no, no, movement It was about 20 uh, grand.
2: O-
0: no, I, Omega, that uh, really about nine months ago.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So the idea, I think, is less about fashion and more about practicality. How can the mechanical watch be improved through materials that are novel? Um, and, And, you know, for example, I don't know where we're going with it, but synthetic sapphire, you know, like titanium before it, was difficult to make. You needed special machinery. You couldn't make precise parts out of it. And now that's changed. So I think it's not necessarily about new materials, but new ways of manufacturing existing materials with more and more and more precision. And so imagine right now we have sort of that area with sapphire, where it used to be that really all you could do with sapphire is make circles with it and things like that. Now... We have sapphire that's cut into much more detailed, non-round parts and things like that. So I think it's very fascinating to see that. Also, 3D printing of metal ah, exists now, yep. but it's not exactly like great metal. Like you can't really like I guess you can polish it, but it's not like you know you can't polish it like a fine steel, right? And mm-hmm. so the ability to have 3D printed metals and things like that. Um, is ideally an evolving area. I think that the Swatch Group got really excited with like liquid metal and stuff like that, and they were hoping there would be something like that. I think liquid metal had some uh, some limitations in terms of uh, other than putting in a mold, what you could do with it. But it's not really for me brand new materials, but it's rather how modern manufacturing can help us use existing materials in ways that can improve a watch's performance. And look at think of dials. Think of you know just three d printed loom, for example, it used to be that you could just paint loom now you can there's certain loom materials that you can machine, and we can have our markers now that are completely made out of loom, maybe hands that are made out of loom, so I think that's where i'm I'm more more excited about you know new ways of using existing materials because modern materials um i mean does a watch need to be any lighter? I don't know, like I'm not really sure other than fashion where a lot of improvements can be made. Uh, in in using you know completely brand new materials, but there's a lot that can be done. For example, in the movement, if you can make more parts out of things other than metals, I mean, why do they use mm-hmm. brass, for example? Because it's soft and it's easy to cut. And if you can cut something like sapphire as easily, that opens up a world of p- potential.
0: Yeah. I found uh, I found the this Omega. I'm, I think it might be the one you're talking of. It's not. I don't fully know the Omega Seamaster Aquaterra Ultra Light. This was this 55 grams Oh, God, grams that one that cost like a bazillion ga- dollars. Yeah, oh, ga- God. The gamma titanium that all the golfers were going to wear. Oh. Uh, 55 grams, which I think the grief they got is, did somebody not spot that it was however many tens of thousands of pounds, and yet at 55 grams, there was another watch that was very similar, which was like 60 grams and about half the price. I'm yeah, sure that, that was, was not that was very... not a
1: hit for Omega. Sorry. Yeah,
0: it was fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Anywho,
1: that's the story. Do you remember there was a watch? This is fascinating. I never actually saw it. Actually, I did one time, maybe at the uh, sort of like the um, the independence part of Baselworld, but it was a mechanical movement. It was all wood. It was a Ukrainian person, like Valery oh, something. Yeah. Do you remember that? There's the some YouTube
2: wood... videos on that as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. Th- that was that was nifty. I don't know how durable it is, but that was cool looking. I I I think that's more worth fifty thousand bucks than. I don't know, like a sport watch that that price. It really doesn't offer you any advantages.
2: Yeah, yeah. This was Valeri
0: Danayevich.
1: There you go.
2: Well, before you we finish up with that one, the only recent new material that I can think of that was genuinely new for watchmaking was when Zenith brought out the Defy Lab and it had the Aeronith bezel and casing <laughs> and that's what they were going to take forward for the the Inventor, which is the Vaporware yeah, yeah, yeah. Award winner of
1: 2020. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and LVMH we- is on a roll with releasing watches that are unproducible.
0: <laughs> well, it could well be the Vaporware winner of 2021 and mm-hmm. 2020 It could be- to do it two years in a row it's the ju- I mean,
1: can you become award
2: I, winner
0: I, I love the fact that I mean Zenith are producing some really nice watches at the moment but it's the fact that they keep on rolling out all these other reimaginings of the El Primero while this watch they promised me nearly two years ago still hasn't appeared
1: no the Defy Inventor the, the, the or the Lab with the kind of like vibrating star yeah the 10 hertz one it doesn't exist yet I'm waiting <laughs>
0: for one of them <laughs> I'm going to quote you back to them and say I, I, I think it's time for me to get my deposit back because this watch is just
2: never going to happen you're seven it's months too gonna, late it's
1: not going to happen but you know what it yeah. gives you you know, the waiting is really the the, the Savoir faire of life, right? If you got it, you'd be bored immediately. But the fact that you have something to look forward to, it gives yeah. you meaning, does it not?
2: Death and taxis. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, it's right. the chase. It's the chase you're it's after, the Rick.
0: Chase. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So next, next question, question. Uh, from Zach Blois, one of our contributors regularly on the podcast and the video cast. So if you could pick any blue dial watch not including June and the Holy Trinity, I think this is based on the popularity of blue dialed watches this particular fortnight.
2: Uh, which blue dial watch would you pick and why? Ricky? Blue dial watch, what would I pick? Well, I think we kind of know the answer to that one. It would be uh, James Do Cameron, we. which is kind of blue dialed. Oh, kind
0: of
1: blue, it? yeah. Is it? Well, <laughs> it's not red <laughs>
2: dialed, Ariel.
1: That is true. That is
0: true. <laughs> How about you? Okay, Ariel.
1: Uh, I'm going to go with the Zen 206 Arctis.
0: Ooh, very nice, good choice. I will obviously go with any Panerai that's got a blue dial. That new one that's sorry, I can't remember the reference number, but it will begin Pam zero something uh, mm-hmm. with a blue dial. That's nice.
1: Okay, so let's talk about people just getting into watches and trying to know where they should put their money first. You have the established brands, and then you have the independents. You you definitely want to you know not spend top dollar, but you also don't want to make too many st- mistakes when you're when you're new. Uh, really, the question is how how much of your attention should be on the big brands and how much should be on the independent brands when you're just starting out buying watches?
0: Oh, uh, I think everybody goes through phases and it depends, I think, probably in the cycle of the moon as to where you enter the watch collecting world on this. So some people will enter it at Rolex and that's all they'll think about. And then, so my, I'll tell you my journey, my journey was, I knew about Rolexes, uh, but first main watch I bought was Panerai for personal reasons. You got it cheap. And then, got it cheap. And then I started looking, I came across APs and the Royal Oak, and I was like, that is a horrible looking watch. (laughs) Why would anybody wear that? And then you go on this journey that's eventually you get to the point where you go, see that AP Royal Oak? That's a cracking looking watch. And actually, I really don't want to own a Rolex. And then you eventually get to the stage where you go, no, actually, I'd have that Rolex. So you get that one. And so I, you, you go in waves and then you go, oh, independence. I could be a bit more funky because nobody's ever asked me, what is that watch you're wearing? Whether it's a Rolex or anything else. Nobody cares. So I actually... You could go and buy something a bit weird and a bit off the shelf so that you know about it and what it is. And so I end up with the Gorilla or a, that ball, a ball watch uh, that's really cool. Uh, so I think people go in phases mm-hmm. in terms of going small or going big brand. And your taste changes, or my taste has changed dramatically. You have taste? And goes in cycles over the year. Well, I have purchasing power. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. the same thing
2: your wife found <laughs> it. yes um i would say again going by my own way of thinking when i first got into watches all i knew was there's this brand called rolex that's it so that's where i went i went with something that was established well known independence wise i think if you're coming into the watch scene you wouldn't have as much experience on and know that there was an independence and a bit like cars if i was buying my first car i probably wouldn't go for a an independent car brand because you don't really know if it's going to be there in x amount of years if you're going to get spare parts what the service will be like or if it's a low volume production if the qc is there so i would just go with the independent secondary and go for mainstream first
1: i i have a slightly different perspective on it just sort of looking backwards really you surprised me (laughs) I, i i hope so a little bit um I think you should buy your Rolexes, your Omegas, your Tag Hoyers, all that stuff pretty far down the road. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons there's no rush, right? Like the Submariner yeah. ain't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's true, it takes an awful long time with watches that are the classics to really know if if you're into them, right? It, it, for, like I when I first got into watches, I was completely bored by Rolex. I mean, I I had I had nothing wrong with them. But I, I didn't get it. I was like, "What's the like?" There's nothing appealing here in the design. It wasn't until I saw thousands of watches. I was like, "Oh, these aren't so bad." But I had to come to there. And if you're gonna have a Rolex, you should know why it's good, right? You should you shouldn't just get it because someone else said that's a cool brand. Same with any of the other top brands or the the big brands for that matter. So I say start with inexpensive stuff from little brands. Um, it used to be, and it's actually less so the case now that you can go in with like a Seiko and be like, "I'm just getting some entry level Seiko; it's gonna be fine." Now, what used to cost you like two, three hundred dollars now costs you six, seven hundred dollars. So, Seiko's still a good entry point, but it's not like as accessible. Um, I would say that the the main focus when you're getting started is to experiment with different types of designs, materials, colors, um, you know, finishes, sizes, complications. Like, get yourself acquainted with as much as possible for as cheap as possible and only then once you sort of start to know your own tastes can you go ahead and start to invest in the more expensive versions of that like if you're like i wonder if i like big diving watches and blue dials and you go straight to panerai you might be sorely mistaken but wait no, a little no, no, while. No, no, you, You'll never be mistaken. <laughs> never mistaken. never be mistaken. Okay, I should never not have mentioned the Panerai. Panerai. Yeah. No, look, no. look, Panerai, Panerai <laughs> is a good choice. You know, do you need like 18 Panerais? Probably not. But, you know, having a Panerai, does, does, it doesn't hurt. It's fun to wear. So you've I got say, one, you've got them all. Well, in some senses, you know, it's, 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 a, it's just it's like one flavor, right? Um, yeah, pretty much. It's, it's really about understanding what you like. And that's what's important is I like what, when people have watches that very much speaks about who they are. They, they help define someone's personality. And I go back to the question of, are you wearing the watch or is the watch wearing you? And I think we all like to wear watches, but sometimes people end up having watches that wear them. And I think that's something that you want to avoid if you're a real watch lover.
2: Right, here we go. We've got a question in from Rasmus Bendix. And he says since rick's always talking about secretly wanting a brightling, ask ariel if he had to pick a brightling, which one would he pick like
1: like um, like one that's available now i mean there's been a l- awful lot of brightlings. like which one okay um well i'm not gonna mention one i'm gonna throw a few out there oh here um, we go here we go <laughs> one of the most satisfying ones honestly is the super ocean heritage it comes in different flavors but it's it's an unbelievably versatile watch. It's comfortable. It's handsome looking. So I think the super ocean heritage is actually like one of the easiest choices. Um, the, the new Chronomats uh, with the new bracelets are, are pretty nice looking. It's, it's got what I like about it is that it's very much a Breitling, but it also very much fits within sort of the theme of integrated bracelets and things like that. So you have this combination of like classic Breitling. It is a new watch. It's got a nice bracelet. It's got their in house movement. So there's a lot to like there. Um, mm-hmm. But then for different types of people, go to one of their quartz things, you know, get an aerospace. Um, uh. You'll feel like an actual pilot because that's what a lot of the, the pilot guys actually like. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're far more uh, affordable than the mechanical watches, and they, they make they make a lot fewer of them, so it's actually, in some senses, more exclusive. Um, I think the funniest first Breitling to ever get would be, like, an Emergency 2. Can you imagine if that was someone's <laughs> first Breitling? I've actually known people that that's been their first Breitling, and that's amusing because it's basically unwearably large, but, which is co- but it's cool. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't know. I think, I think that's really some of the best places to start. The timer, which I think is a lot of people's choice, is a very... You know, it's one of those watches that, like, at first you m- you might not be into it. It takes a while to appreciate one like that. It's not as much of a crowd pleaser. It seems like it's one of the most popular things, but actually nowadays, um, Breitling likes to call like a bunch of different watches a Navitimer. So I'm yeah. talking about you know the chronograph with the um, slide rule bezel and all that. That's the Navitimer. All the shit everywhere. To. Yeah, so everything is like Navitimer now. Um, mm-hmm. So I I'd say that you know among among the Super Ocean Heritage um, and the Chronomats. Those are those are really good places to start. I don't know. It's like I don't know who buys like a normal Super Ocean or like a, a Colt or an Avenger, whatever the one they didn't discontinue. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a strange thing because like those are not what I immediately think of in my mind as being like the Breitling at least was popular today, even though they're like some of those are a little bit less expensive. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's for people that have a like a collection of watches and want to have something in there. Um I I hope there's an answer in there somewhere. I mean, I, I I am a Breitling fan. I I actually like Breitling. I think a lot more than some other people. Um, I you know I I've always had sort of a uh, a good appreciation for the even when they didn't have their own movements. People are like, oh, it doesn't have its own movement, but like they had great dials, amazing cases, good bracelets. Like it felt like such a solid watch. And I don't know why for so long people kind of like you know were, were hard on it. And it's one of the few brands that's that's made sure to always have a brand personality like yes yes that's important
0: absolutely Mm -hmm. it's the only brand i think that holds of mass produce that holds a candle to rolex in my opinion Mm -hmm. because it virtually every single one of their watches has a personality to it you can identify that it is a brightling from a distance okay it might be a sin that you're actually looking at but you can identify Mm -hmm. people know what the navi timer is it's It has seeped more into culture, not as much as Rolex, but it is definitely within the culture. Mm -hmm. Things like Breitling, the the emergency. People know that watch. You
2: are not watch people. Uh, So, yeah. But I still don't own one. Fair enough. I would go for the Cockpit B50 Orbiter Limited Edition, black titanium with orange. And that's basically a souped up version of the Aerospace. Because yeah, I really cool like that watch. as well. Is that one thermally compensated quartz? Of course. That's the all singing, all yeah, dancing guy. Are you yeah. crazy?
1: Yeah, of course it is. We're talking about an <laughs> instrument for professionals. <laughs> just making sure.
2: Just
0: making sure. We thank you for all the questions we we didn't manage to get round to. I'm just oh, we do have scan. a bonus
2: question. We need to ask this bonus question. Right, this will okay. be our last one, right? And okay. uh, Ralph from our writers group again, he posted a photo of you, Ariel, at Dubai Watch Week where you're on the floor taking photos uh-huh. using all kinds of chairs and things as props what was going on in this photo is what he is asking well um, the photo in the show notes yes photo will be <laughs> yeah in the show no notes. i
1: saw, i saw this okay so like i i have this weird thing where i uh i get on the floor a lot to take pictures of watches And it's not because i like sitting on the floors because i i have to use light in interesting ways and things like tables and chairs um can be very good props for bouncing light in fact You know, we'll be in Basel World, for example, and we'll be like in a room where like everything is black. Uh, You know, we've been in these rooms. You're like, oh my God, this is the disaster for photography. And then you look like under the table, like literally under the table, it's white. You're like, gold. So I spend a lot of time under tables (laughs) and meetings in Basel World on the floor taking pictures of watches. People are like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, gotta get the shot. So I have this very strange reputation for. I guess being obnoxious, I was yelled at one time, I think I was in like Mexico during the CR, and I asked the wrong person to hold a photography umbrella, and he yelled at me, he's like, who do you think I am? Carrying around your umbrella indoors, you know this is bad luck, and I'm like, really man? Like, I'm trying to shoot your freaking watch here. Um, so I, I, in order to do portable photography uh, with a little bit of a setup that allows me to take the right shots, I have to get creative on what they call light shaping. That's like the sort of nerdy term for, for you know, what I'm doing. And when you're doing light shaping, you, you need to make sure that you get enough light on the subject, but also heavily diffused. Because if you've ever tried to take a shot of a watch with a lot of glare, you'll be like, how does this happen with all the reflectivity? So over the years I've do, been doing this, you know, shooting watches for well over a decade now, going into the 13th or 14th year, I've had to create um, sort of special techniques. And I've never really seen too many other people able to replicate it. I don't—I think it's because they lack the bravery of just getting on the ground and, and mm-hmm. you know, just sort of getting into it. But to make a long story short... Um, I'm taking pictures of watches and I'm trying to make sure that the lighting is correct. And to do that, I have to ignore all social norms.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that is us done, Rick. So do you want to end Excellent. the show on a high? Yes. So we'll, we'll end
0: the mini series. So Ariel, thank you very much for signing up to this My and for joining us. It's been good fun. Uh, we shall see what happens next but mm-hmm. I have really enjoyed it thank you to everybody for popping their question you can find all the Scottish Watches team uh, on YouTube on Facebook, on Instagram etc etc Ariel where can everybody find yourself?
1: Uh, you can go to blog you can go to the blog2watch Instagram page we have the YouTube channel um, I like to podcast as evidenced by this great little miniseries that uh, we They're Uh, coming for you Ariel,
2: they're coming for you
1: (laughs) He's coming for me um, and I'm just really happy to be doing fun stuff like this, it's absolutely delight to spend good times with Watch Buddies that makes my day every day so thank you so much for giving me this opportunity and thanks to everyone for listening Brilliant
2: Brilliant
0: stuff, so as we like to say it's goodbye from me
2: and it's goodbye from both of them
1: Goodbye. Bye everyone (laughs) We'll be
0: right